and welcome to another edition of LGBT in the Ring, your rainbow bastion for all things pro wrestling. I am your host, Brian Bell, here with you once again. And of course, we are completing our double dose of the show this week um, with a very special guest. We're kind of crossing the bridge out of Journo January in an interesting way here, um, talking to Quinn Carver Johnson, a poet. Um, whose first poetry collection came out back in September called The Perfect Bastard, which is a sort of narrative collection of poems telling the story of a non-binary queer pro wrestler uh, working a fictional circuit uh, in the kind of the Midwest, Mid-South region of the world and kind of telling this very interesting story about... um, authenticity and and representation of queerness in those spaces in a very very interesting real and raw way um and i couldn't be more delighted to have quinn on to talk about the the book and you know kind of have get into a deeper discussion about some of the the topics and and themes discussed in the book especially as they relate to the real life world of pro wrestling which you know continues to grow ever queerer <laughs> um but still faces faces uh, plenty of issues rooted in pro wrestling's past depictions and interpretations and attitudes towards our community as well so i'm very very excited for all of y'all to hear that conversation here today um thank you again for everybody who has gone and listened to our review or recap or discussion rather on Effie's Big Gay Brunch 8. Of course, that dropped yesterday. Um, just, I don't know. There's just something special about bringing someone in, especially someone that's close to you, like I am with Hollis. You know, we don't just do the the Patreon show required reading together. We've been friends for phew, decades at this point. Um, but just knowing that I could kind of help give him an avenue into seeing what the pro wrestling world has become since he really dropped off as a fan. Um, it was really special. And just to, I don't know, y'all, if you listen to the show, you hear the glee and it's always been talking about <laughs> all of the matches from that show. Um, and that's the point of all this, right? The point of, of pro wrestling and why we keep doing all of this and, and continue to change the game in the way that our community has over the last number of years is to see all these new eyes and, and or you know eyes that haven't paid attention to pro wrestling in a while really come back and see the change that has happened and understand there's even more of a place for them in in this space too um and there's so many new favorites to discover as well. So, <laughs> so yeah, if you haven't yet, go check that one out too. That dropped yesterday. Um, I apologize for its length. Hollis and I, <laughs> when we get going, we get going. Um, so, did not plan to record a podcast that's longer than the actual show we are talking about. But sometimes that's what happens there. So... It was very funny. Like when we got together to to start recording, we're literally like, "Oh, this will only take an hour," and then of course we were there for you only heard the three hours of it, and not the the hour or so that 
was cut because it wasn't actually talking about the show. <laughs> but either way, it doesn't matter. Um, really fun discussions there. And who knows? Maybe we'll have Hollis back to talk about another show at some point down the line. But if you want to hear more from me and Hollis, you can always subscribe over at patreon.com slash LGBT ring pod at the $5 bonus love tier, because that's where you get required reading, uh, as well as, um, any additional monthly shows that we do. Uh, so yeah, that, that show is always fun to do. We actually have a new episode coming up soon. I apologize that we weren't able to get our January episode out before the end of January. That will be coming out here very shortly. And then I have something, uh, really fun planned for for Hollis for February so keep your eyes there and uh definitely if you want to check those out patreon.com slash lgbt ring pod all right well with that being said let's jump right into my conversation here with Quinn Carver Johnson what's up guys gals and non-binary pals welcome back to lgbt in the ring i'm very pleased to have as my guest this week the mind behind the uh, poetry collection the perfect bastard a lovingly crafted uh, collection of poems that tells a just incredibly evocative and emotional and at many points gritty uh depiction of a queer pro wrestler in the Midwest that just tugs on the heartstrings. Honestly, I can say that I've read the book multiple times at this point, and I can safely say that it's, it pulled tears and, and smiles out of me. And I'm very happy to have the, the writer of the perfect bastard here on the show with me today, Quinn Carver Johnson. How are you doing today, Quinn? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on Brian. And thank you for your kind words there. That's really awesome to hear. No, I mean, it's it's the God's honest truth, though. You know, like I whatever, like we got in contact about like what about a month or so back um, right around when the, the QWI 200 list was kind of going out. And yeah, um, and I was that was a very, very welcome discovery to like kind of like make that connection with you because, you know, I think. I think you don't necessarily get a lot of like people in the poetry world, especially like from the queer community that are like really touching on this burgeoning avenue of like the queer pro wrestling movement that we see. Right. There are plenty of queer people that have a relationship with pro wrestling, but taking it into the art form, especially in terms of poetry, like I, the, I can only think of two off the top of my head, you and Colette Aaron, you know, um, which that's, very good company to be in <laughs> I would imagine you know um but it's, it was an interesting idea whenever you told me about the book and then whenever I finally got my hands on it and I got to to really dig into it like there was just something about this like this hillbilly nature that was built into this story of not just a queer progressor but just a queer person trying to like you know find their way in this incredibly like predatory world that pro wrestling can present in terms of like the backstage scenes and as well as some of the front of stage stuff too, like, and really kind of finding this, this power within themselves in a way. Like, I don't know. It was just, it was just really um, invigorating and refreshing to see. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm glad you kind of touched on, you know, um, 
that connection and then also Colette's book. Um, one of the coolest things about like writing this book and putting it out and like doing the networking around it is figuring out that like it's very niche, but it's like not as niche as you would think, you know, mm -hmm. like um, I wrote this book originally as my um, senior thesis project. I s majored in creative writing and it was like, of course, I was the only one there writing about pro wrestling as the only person writing about queer pro wrestling. Um, but it's been so awesome to figure out, like, there's actually like so many books about pro wrestling that aren't just like nonfiction that are short stories and poetry and um plays and things like that and then to learn about all of like podcasts like yours and queer people writing about wrestling and covering wrestling and getting in the ring you know learning that like i am not the only person <laughs> with these experiences that feels this way you know is actually really cool Though I found Colette's book, Hold Me Gorilla Monsoon, great book, I recommend it. I found out that that book existed about halfway through drafting this in college, and I just went, fuck, I'm going to have to start <laughs> over. Um, and I like scrambled to find a copy of it and make sure that we did not write the same book, you know? Mm -hmm. And thankfully, we, you know, didn't. I think, you know, our books are very different um, and distinct in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And once I knew that I hadn't accidentally plagiarized her book, I was like thrilled that it existed. <laughs> I mean, I can understand that fear, especially like feeling like you are the only one in the space and then finding out like, oh, wait, no, there's this other person who has already put out a collection like that maybe isn't along the same lines, but just the fact that you are so deep into this niche that, and you have this idea of what this niche has to be. And then you find out someone else has written within it. And it's like, Oh shit. Like somebody like I'm stepping on someone else's toes, but like knowing yeah. like, cause like I've known, I know I've known Colette for, for a little while now and like kind of getting to know you over the last month. Like I can, I can see where that fear was, but I also can see two very diametric different like approaches and viewpoints when it comes to like approaching this, the collections that y'all have put out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I didn't mean to cut you off before. Like, what, what what were you about to say? Oh, no, it's just, you know, that's been so cool getting to, like, network and learn, you know, who is in the pro wrestling literary world and who is in the queer pro wrestling world and the ways those interact, you know. Because mm -hmm. um, in some ways it's cool to be like, I am unique. This is like no one's ever seen anything like this. But then in other ways it's just like, okay, cool. I have friends. I'm not alone, which I think is like a thing, like a lot of queer people and a lot of pro wrestling fans feel, you know? Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, thank God there's like somebody else. <laughs> I I can definitely attest to that feeling for sure. Especially whenever you combine the two together <laughs> in ways, like it is very easy to kind of feel like you're just on this Island by yourself and have these new avenues open up of communication like it just makes you feel less lonely and there, there's a there's a power in that i think yeah absolutely because you know the other side of that is like you know oh i wrote this book oh that's awesome tell me what it's about and i'm like well it's about a non-binary pro wrestler and they're like none of those words make <laughs> any sense <laughs> 
Oh, I, I, I love the idea of like having to describe this to, to people, you know, and I, I think that would be a perfect like avenue to start kind of talking about the book a little bit is like, how do you describe it to people whenever, whenever they ask you about it? And how has that description yeah, like mean, evolved? Um, it depends, you know, um, sometimes it's just a book about pro wrestling. Sometimes it's a book about queer pro wrestling. Um, but I think, you know, for your audience, it's, um, I guess what you would call a novel in verse. Um, it's a full like narrative that overarches through all of these different poems, um, following this character, the perfect bastard, um, who's a queer non-binary indie pro wrestler in this kind of fictional indie territory that kind of takes place Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, which is where I really grew up. Um, I was born in Kansas, went to college in Arkansas, and now I'm here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, so it's really, you know, using this kind of space, I, I know this very like distinct center, Midwest, Mid-South, um, environment um, and using that as the backdrop for the perfect bastards um, kind of attempt to build their dream life in the world of pro wrestling um, but also remain true to themselves as a queer person which is mm -hmm. where a lot of the tension of the book comes in um, the conflict between those two goals mm -hmm. no it's it's an interesting conflict honestly you know and i think one that resonates with a lot of people not just depending on like you know where they grew up like if they grew up in like the mid-south like like yourself or um you know people that like me that grew up in the southeast you know like they're like you always kind of are faced with this dilemma of like how much of yourself do you put out there you know growing up and like you know and the idea of masks and they play obviously they play a heavy emphasis in in parts of of the the book but be, even beyond like the idea of pro wrestling like growing up queer in these areas that you know are more hostile than than other places perhaps you know um to us and to our community like yeah, it brings up the idea of like straight passing the idea of like putting these these sort of like different versions of ourselves on depending on what community we are around, you know, and not really having too many spaces to really just let all of that fall away and just be like who we are, you know, like, I don't know, like that sort of, that sort of idea like really struck me, especially with the setting that, that you chose for it. Obviously like it's an area that, you know, but it's also an area that I feel like gets overlooked in like the real world pro wrestling space you know especially in the, the the way that we've seen the independents kind of have their boom like obviously like st louis has its has its place with a few companies there but like kansas oklahoma arkansas you know and, th and those areas like obviously have pro wrestling but they don't have the same level of like eyeballs on it as other places do and in some ways i can see how that makes those areas maybe feel forgotten but um, I think that's one of the reasons why I was so pleased to kind of find people like 
in in the area like that you're in like logan knight and olivier vegas and malik mayfield and like people like that that not only are um queer in the pro wrestling space but are um really thriving in in the areas that that they have right now and starting to kind of have their names come up a bit more outside of it yeah i'm a huge logan knight fan um <laughs> i've got one of his posters hanging up in my office at work he was just named uh oklahoma wrestler of the year dope and, like very very well deserved uh he's incredible um and just such a great guy too um you know um we'll talk about this a little later on but he actually we met through a book event i had done oh um that he worked at um but yeah, um, you're right that this is really like not pro wrestling country and like in the terms of like indie pro wrestling, but also in the terms of like WWE, AEW, uh, AEW just like within the past few months has been like Wichita, Kansas, Oklahoma City. They're coming to Tulsa for the first time um, in a couple weeks and I'm actually going to be out of town and I'm pissed about it. Um <laughs> WWE, you know, they do like a show in Tulsa like once a year, but growing up in Kansas, you know, you could go see them in Wichita, but it was a house show, mm -hmm. you know, same deal in Arkansas. Um, you know, they came to Little Rock maybe once a year and then some house shows around, you know, um, like there wasn't it's not these like coastal areas or St. Louis or, you know, these high um, Chicago, you know, these high trafficked. Uh, metropolitan areas that see a lot of that stuff mm. um so a lot of my exposure to pro wrestling has been pro wrestling on the television you know there really hasn't been um before i got here to tulsa a lot of chance to see live pro wrestling how did that kind of like shape your your view of it and your relationship with it growing up like having it be just like this this one-way thing where you're watching it through the tv and not really getting the the push and pull of the live experience as much yeah i mean it definitely um you know i think it kind of narrowed as a child at least my focus into like um kind of exclusively wwe you know that was kind of the only game in town you know we knew that like tna impact uh was around and you could catch a few episodes of that but you know i didn't really understand that like there was indie pro wrestling that there was like japanese pro wrestling that you could find and stuff like that you know um mm. it was really just you know what came on the tv every week um which was the wwe which has not had a great track record of presenting queer folks nope <laughs> to say the least and especially not like in the early 2000s when I was watching, you know. Mm -hmm. um, no, I think like the closest thing that you could point to is having even like a modicum of positivity. And that is a very like heavy like caveat, I think, would be like Billy and Chuck. But yeah. Um... <laughs> And so Billy and Chuck was a pretty big inspiration point for me writing this book. Mm. Um, 
that happened like 2000, late 2001 through 2002, which was a little too early for me to have watched it live, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a part in the book, um, Act 3, where the perfect bastard is kind of given a Billy and Chuck storyline, you know? They're presented this wedding angle that they know at the end of this angle is not going to end in a happy marriage. Because uh, that doesn't happen in pro wrestling. Um, you know, it's um, it's a stage for violence, you know. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, it's a stage for drama and betrayal and that kind of soap opera swerve at the end. Um Sorry, I'm just looking up real and, quick. I I need to see. I I just so I don't mean to cut you off. Just the name of of the of the poem that you're referencing. I love the title of it. I just need to put it out there for everyone to hear. They say 50% of marriages end in divorce, but 100% of pro wrestling marriages end in disaster. Yeah. Um oh. would you like me to read that poem? It's a pretty short one. Yeah, go for it. Um yeah, um I'll do that. But yeah, that Billy and Chuck thing and what I want to say about that is I think Billy Gunn is one of the most talented entering performers like ever. It's mm-hmm. even like watching back like all the Billy and Chuck stuff as um, like research for this book and getting like so angry at like the shit that J.R. and Jerry Lawler would say and you know the like way these two guys were presented billy gunn was just out in the ring like kicking ass um and i'm so happy to see him with the acclaimed now yes i like this is like a redemption for billy gunn i think uh (laughs) It's like the Billy Gunn apology tour. He's like making things right with the queer community. Uh, I'm huge Billy Gunn fan. I have sent, I didn't get any response, but I sent all three members of the acclaimed a copy of this book. Uh, and in my note to Billy Gunn, I said, I'm sorry about act three. I forgive you. Um, but yeah, here's this poem um, that's kind of based on that Billy and Chuck marriage. Um, And it's called, they say 50% of marriages end in divorce, but 100% of pro wrestling marriages end in disaster. Chekhov's gun, isn't it? To stage joy in a ring designed for violence and expect violence not to barge into the rehearsal dinner drunk and sloppy. Give me a break. No one signs a contract without flipping the table and swinging a few fists. Certainly no one is happily wed in this world. No, not without blood. You know as well as me in this ring, wedding bells are just the same as the ring bell in the corner. When it starts ringing, someone is going to throw a punch. This time... It's me, the beautiful, blushing, bastard bride, dressed in white, holding an explosion of pink flowers. Backstage, I drape a sheet of lace over pink and white face paint. 
you lift the veil only to find another veil. Doesn't it just feel right? My family plays this game during the holidays. I'm telling you this because tonight I am welcoming you into my family. And the rules are simple. You take $20 or $10 if it has been a rough year and you put it in a box covered in gift wrap. You wrap that box inside another box and you wrap that box inside well, you see where this is going. You slip on a pair of oven mitts. Someone cranks up one of those old kitchen timers and you try your damnedest to rip these boxes open before the time runs out. Get it? The veil over my makeup, makeup over my face. And what of this face? What's it hiding? Tell me. Is it an act of intimacy or violence to step into this ring and let men in oven mitts try to rip back all my layers? What is it when I'm standing in front of the mirror doing the same? Don't answer. There's no time for that. Tonight is my wedding and listen, they're playing my song. Mm. So, yeah, and the Sorry, real, oh, yeah, I was going to say the real kind of difference, you know, um, that I tried to add to the perfect bastards experience in this situation is that they are a queer person, you know, they're mm -hmm. not, that part isn't a work, it isn't made up, it isn't, you know, but this version of the queer person that they're being asked to portray is, you know, this stereotype, this joke, you know, um, this goofy, effeminate Billy and Chuck thing, you know. Um, and if you watch a lot of the like Billy Gunn, Chuck Palumbo interviews, like even today when they get asked about that stuff, they're always like, oh, well, we never saw any problem with it because, you know, we're actually straight dudes and we're really confident with that. And that's like great and all, but like, that's not my problem with it. Yeah. Um, you know, so the perfect bastard is put in this situation where like, they are the ones that are being harmed by this thing they're doing. No. And I think it resonates incredibly well like you know we talked about the idea of like mass the idea of like these sort of personas that are put on us because of the environments that we are in and are like directly come from the people in those environments and like it, it reminds me of you know just strictly talking in the pro wrestling space like how so many of these major companies that have given given us these characters like billy and chuck like you know uh, like gold dust which gold dust was my like my Billy and Chuck for whenever I started pro watching pro wrestling. Yeah. You know, like it's all these, it's all these characters that are derived from the heterosexual cisgender viewpoint of what defines queerness, you know? And that is always like, just kind of stuck in like the, like back of my mind is like this sort of like, like, um, thistle 
that's just always there just like poking me and just like i i know that like gold dust for me was like in, in incredible thing for me to see at a young age you know whenever i'm just kind of burgeoning and learning about myself but at the same time knowing that that's what the straight people behind the scenes think of a queer man of a gay man you know of a queer person like this is what they they exist to be just laughed at mocked have slurs thrown at them and be completely mischaracterized whenever we're just real people yeah absolutely and that's something you know i've loved to see change you know over the years um even since i've like written this book you know it came out last september but i um had been editing it for about a year and a half before that um and you know in the acknowledgments i think uh effie and sunny kiss uh and i still hold by that i think both of them are great but like if i had to write that acknowledgement today the list would be way longer mm. you know who would be um, some of the names that would you would add to that list? Uh, Anton Voorhees, Pollo Del Mar, Dark Sheik. Um, and then, you know, some local guys like Logan Knight and stuff like that. Um, uh, Abaddon, I just saw that uh, Hey EW interview they yes. did with RJ City, <laughs> and it was the greatest thing I've ever seen. Um <laughs> You know, so it's great to see that, like, even just in a few years, like, uh, my idea of, like, who is representing queerness and pro wrestling is, like, outdated. Mm. Um, that, like, not to say, like, those two people are outdated. Like, I still think they're on the, the cutting edge in the zeitgeist. But, like, they're not the only ones anymore, you know, or the only ones that come to mind. Um, and I think that's really awesome to see. No, like I, I'm, I'm with you because, like, I think a lot of people, whenever they kind of discover this side of of the pro wrestling space, right? Effie and Sunny Kiss are definitely two like in, people that are very in, are entry level people for them. Like they are, I think they have like the level of popularity and the level of visibility that people can really like gravitate to them and and have more of a chance to really see them. But then as you get into the space, you realize there's like so many more and there's so many more depictions of of queerness too within it as well like it it breaks down this historically held idea within pro wrestling of like well this is the one way that you present a queer identity this is the one way either they're like you know mickey james like trying to you know like kind of de the the uh, like single white female lesbian sort of thing going on right or you have like the billy and chuck angle to it or you have the goal even that ties into the goldust angle to it because you had goldust say he wasn't gay publicly and then get cheered on raw back in the 90s you know and like you have all these different people but then also it goes back mm. even further and this is where i want to talk to you about the role right. that and Adrian like contrast that moment with like the he's gay champ yes um, yes a few oh months ago like like those, the fact that those two things happened in like the same lifetime is like incredible. It's beautiful. It's something I never thought I would see, honestly, on like a major stage like that. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in to LGBT in the Ring. We're just going to take a quick break here to let you know uh, ways that you 
can support the show and say thank you to some very rad people that help make this show uh, as amazing as it is. Um, first off, if you would like to support the show, we are on Patreon now, patreon.com slash LGBT ring pod, multiple tiers there for everyone that feels so moved to support this show. We've got numerous uh, patron benefits over there, uh, including bonus shows that are going to be coming out on a monthly uh, roundtable of those sort of things. So uh, definitely go over and check us out. Uh, again, patreon.com slash LGBTRingPod. Every single dollar that is uh, pledged there to support the show is very, very humbling, and we thank you. We also have a, a merch store over on Brainbuster Tees. Go to brainbustertees.com and search LGBT in the ring. Uh, you get t-shirts, tank tops, all kinds of good stuff. And, you know, always looking at some new things as well. But uh, definitely check us out on Brainbuster Tees there as well. You can follow the show on social media as well. We're everywhere um, that we have accounts. We're at LGBT RingPod. That's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, co-host, <laughs> Mastodon, whatever, we're there. Uh, so follow the show there. You can follow me at WonderboyOTM on uh, Twitter and Instagram as well. We also want to give a huge thank you to Sarah and the Safe Word for the show's theme, uh, Formula 666, from the album Red Hot and Holy. You can find them on Twitter at STSW Band, or you can check out their music on both Spotify and Bandcamp. Another great way to support the show uh, is over at independentwrestling.tv. Check out IWTV for the best in current and classic independent pro wrestling, including live events from top independent promotions worldwide. You can use our code LGBTRingPod or visit uh, the URL, tinyurl.com slash IWTVLGBT. And uh, whenever you, uh, as long as you use that code to open your account and keep that active, we get a kickback from IWTV. So your subscription to watch all the great wrestling that we talk about on this show uh, goes to support the show as well. Thumbs up there. Of course, if you want to read more of my pro wrestling writing, you can check out outsports.com. And if you are into video games, I also co-host a video game news uh, Twitch stream every Monday at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. It's called the Mr. Video Game Super Show. Um, I co-host that with uh, two dear friends and Twitch streamers, uh, Slacker Kite and Lady Merwin. Um, just run through the, the week's gaming news or we throw on a game and play and just have fun and be dumb. It's it's great. But uh, you can check that out every Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific over at twitch.tv slash Entertainment. Sun like the star. With that said, let's get back to the show. But But all that kind of brings me to another figure very prominent in the book that I wanted to talk, talk to you about. And that being Adrian street. Um, because, you know, in, in, in the book, Adrian street is like one of the two kind of like real life wrestlers that are like named and, and talked about um, with him and Terry Taylor, obviously the two participants in that very famous uh, mid South television championship match um, that <laughs> is depicted in the book as well. Um, Talk to me about the role that Adrian Street played in for yourself 
as well as kind of in, in terms of like inspiring the book yeah um so i really kind of like dug into this um queerness and pro wrestling like rabbit hole um even before I had the idea to write a book about it, I was doing some kind of research project in college um, where I just had to get so many hours of like study time or activity time um, around gender and sexuality. Um, and that was a vague enough window that I was like, I am going to like just dig into pro wrestling. Um, and Adrian Streets, one of the first names that kind of pops up along with, and, you know, I talked about a second ago, like Effie and Sunny Kiss, like no longer being the only two names you think of. When I started this project, like the one name that like you could point to as like positive queer, uh, like, you know, representation was the Velveteen Dream, which is fucking insane. Yeah. Uh, like, I came, like, that's how, like, we, I came into this, was like, <laughs> he was like, crazy. Times change uh, for the better. Yes. Um, but, like, he was the person you could point to and be like, he's doing something for the queer community. Um, again, straight dude playing a queer character. Um, and that's not even the surface of the iceberg of that um but adrian street's one of these names that came up in all these lists and articles and adrian street comes up in like every article every documentary every as like this boundary pushing pro wrestler um who paved the way and showed people something they had never seen and i think in a lot of ways that's true but in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the Billy and Chuck thing, where this boundary-pushing, androgynous queer character he's showing you is like straight, white, conservative America's nightmare version of what a gay person is. You know, he mm -hmm. grabs other men on the butt, and he wears horrendous clown makeup, and... um. And in this match with Terry Taylor um, for the Mid-South television title, Adrian Street wins the match by planting this surprise kiss on Terry Taylor. And Terry Taylor is stunned in this like moment of disgust, and Street uses that opening to pin him and win the title. And for one, that's sexual assault. Yeah. And no one talks about that. I listen to like all the different like review podcasts, retro review, like watch alongs. And I don't remember who it was, but only one of the podcasts was like, hey, that's a sex crime. Everyone else kind of focused on, well, that's homophobic, which it is. Yeah. But above, you know, but it shares this message that like, what queer people are in the Adrian Street version of events is like predators, which is something that like the conservative far right is still trying to tell people about drag queen story times and about 
trans people and you know we're still getting this message that like this is dangerous for your kids that this is you know this is something inherently violent and dangerous and when i watch adrian street you know that's all i kind of take away from it mm. and maybe that's because he's doing this in the 70s and 80s and enough time has passed that i can't really you know see him for like this trailblazer he may have been at the time um but it's not something that's aged well for me. I mean, I can I can understand the viewpoint, though, you know, because like I think for for a long time before I really kind of delved into sort of like the the wider like impacts and, and cultural touchstones of these things for myself, like I think I had Adrian Street kind of in that same boat in a lot of ways, you know, and, you know, through the course of a lot of like reexamining of figures um you do kind of come to a, a different place and at points with with characters like that you know especially i know for me where it started to really turn was whenever wwe put out the the mini documentary that they did on on adrian mm -hmm. street and i i remember i had just started without sports and i watched that documentary and i noticed that in the entire like 20 to 25 minutes or whatever that it was Never once did they ever say the word gay in it. Mm -hmm. They they never said like queer, gay, homosexual, anything like that. It was always flamboyant. It was always androgynous. It was always these these coded words that were like, well, you know what we're talking about, but we're not willing to actually say it. And that apprehension always it, it stuck with me since I since I watched it. Um and it it just speaks to like you're willing to like create characters that will play in our playground, but you don't actually want to do anything to make us feel like we belong. Right. Absolutely. And same deal with Billy Gunn. I love watching most Adrian Street matches. He is like an incredible catch wrestler. Oh, yes. He's a legitimate tough guy. And I think he's like a good promo too. You know, he knows how to work over a crowd. He's, um, but he's also the bad guy and he's the bad guy because he's queer, you know? Yeah. Um, and like, there was like one, I think it's, it's an odd sort of like relationship that I think some people can have with Asian street because like, Yes, like there, there is that push and pull, right? With like, you know, you are basically like mirroring the the queer panic that that we're seeing in this era that is basically persisted into you know our current day. Just honestly, not really changing all that much. Just a different focus, you know, being put more on like trans people versus just the general idea of like the gay man or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like. There is still like I I still find some power in certain aspects of Adrian Street. Like you, like the the photo that famous photo of him with his father, you know, outside of the coal mine, and you have like the coal miners like all sooted up with in the big eyes, and you just see Adrian standing there. Like I I find myself so many times looking at that picture and like pulling inspiration from it, just seeing like you know this idea of like someone that can be themselves even though it's not real that's not really adrian street you know the person 
that's just the character Asian Street in that in that photo, but seeing them like rise above this sort of like lot in life that they thought they would have or like this the like dreams or aspirations that the father would put on the the boy and that sort of thing like and you can pull power from that but at the same time you know that there's a level of facade to it because he's not queer because he's portraying a character even in this very inspirational photograph that has stood the test of time like it's just it's just this like weird like dichotomy that has persisted in like it's, it's similar to how i feel at times about gold does how i feel about billy gunn and chuck palumbo you know i mean even recently we just had the big gay brunch eight happen where like you know mansoor and and mason madden the former maximum male models who had you know another gimmick along those lines in a way, no matter whatever the WWE brass wants to describe it as metrosexual as opposed to it not being a gay thing. Um, and then they come, they get released and they have their match against against Effie and Alley Catch at the Big Gay Brunch 8. And you see, like, it's like a different take on a similar story in a way of like, okay, well, y'all want to come into the space. Y'all are going to have to commit to the bit now, you know. And it's the, it just ha has that separation of like the reality of the person and the reality of the character and just where where do you find the the praise and the fault in the space between? Yeah, and that's kind of the journey that the perfect bastard goes on um, with Adrian Street too, not just me, you know, as a wrestling fan. The perfect bastard in this story is kind of, you know, finds themselves in Adrian Street early on, kind of as a queer person, as a wrestling fan, as someone who wants to step into the ring. And that's kind of the idol that drives them forward through a lot of this story. Um, you know, because I think there is a lot of inspiration and a lot you can um, take there. And that photo um, that, you know, I'm not the only one to ever talk about it. You know, everyone's <laughs> um, everyone's talked about this photo of Adrian Street. But, you know, that's, there's a poem dedicated to that, too, in this kind of um, rising above this, like, negative relationship with your father, the perfect bastard feels and finds in Adrian Street. Um, but as they get later on in the story, in a similar way to the way that I kind of recontextualize the Billy Gunn, Chuck Palumbo story, the perfect bastard later on is given another set of bookings um, that would put them in this storyline where they would win a championship, this thing they've always won. But to do it, they've got to do this Adrian Street moment. They've got to do this kiss that presents, you know, this act of queer love as really this like violent sexual offense. Um, and they're going to play the villain doing it. And the perfect bastard kind of has this moment where they have to like, look at Adrian street, this icon, this celebrity that they've looked up to and say like, but for me, it's real, you know, yeah. like you can play this role and then go home and live your life. But whatever I do to represent queerness, you know, comes back to me as a queer person. 
Um, and I think, you know, that's where a lot of the tension with the Adrian Street legacy kind of lies, you know? No, I think it definitely does. And I think that's why, like, that particular poem, like, towards the end of the book was probably the one that, like, cut deepest for me. Like, that was the one that, like, was had the most impact because, you know, so many of us growing up have our – either they have Adrian Street or they have their version of Adrian Street. And to kind of – like, whenever you're younger, you you take in what you can from it, and maybe you try and, like, either ignore, like, the problematic aspects of it or you're just not aware of them because you're just too young to recognize those things. But then as you grow and you learn and you look back at these things with – and take off like the nostalgia glasses and you kind of realize more and more that like I, I I still understand why I pulled so much from this character but at the same time what kind of damage did it do you know and what kind of damage does it continue to perpetuate as we move forward like that as someone who like is like keenly focused on on the pro wrestling space you know, as deeply as I am, like those kind of things, like just gut me whenever I just, it's one of those moments where you just kind of like read something and you sit with it and you're just like, fuck, like you're like going through events in your own life. And that's what I, that's what I love about the book is like, there's so many pieces in it that make you do that. But for me in particular, that was one that was just like, man, I need to just, like it, I, yeah, that was, that was a kind of a, I put a bookmark in and just put it down and just kind of like sit with myself for a little bit moment after reading that one in particular. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I could have that effect, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. I hope this is a book that makes people kind of reflect and, you know, especially make queer people see themselves um, and hopefully in a positive way, you know, I, I don't think representations everything. And I know like, Thankfully, our conversations over, you know, the past few years in terms of queerness have kind of risen above just that, you know, but it is like vitally important to see yourselves. And I think especially as queer people, we're so accustomed to finding representation, even when it isn't there, mm -hmm. you know, for better or for worse reading. You know, I think MJF um, Adam Cole is one of the greatest queer romance stories in modern times, <laughs> uh, you know, because I think just as queer people were accustomed to like their boyfriends, they want to kiss, you know, latch on to any kind of homoerotic undertones that are there. Um, but often that act of like reading queerness into something that isn't inherently queer or is queer in this disingenuous way does have its pitfalls and its disappointments and you get hurt in a lot of ways um, because it wasn't meant for you or it's not what you're actually searching for. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of one of my hopes with the perfect bastard was to provide this like actual, like legitimately queer wrestling character, um, you know, to create the character I would have wanted to see on the television when I was growing up. Mm. And what's interesting about about that aspect of it is that you brought you brought it up earlier, you know, in promoting the book and in kind of you know like having these these like stage readings of of some of the pieces in it, you actually got to do an event 
with pro wrestling and drag all encompassed into one thing. You actually got to read selections from the book in a wrestling ring and kind of uh, a sort of a self-portrayal of the perfect bastard in a way, all the way down to the, the pink cowboy hat and the pink chair with this machine kills fascists on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he did this event um, in October of last year called the perfect bastard versus the boyhood dream. The original hope was to have two wrestlers um, portraying um, the perfect bastard. And then this character, the boyhood dream who does not appear in the story, but kind of encompasses the general themes of the book, you know, the tension that the perfect bastards like facing in this story. Um, and we weren't able to do that specifically in the end, but we were able um, to do a backyard wrestling show um, that featured me reading poetry and a trans friend of mine playing guitar and doing some of his um, songs he had written. And we got a local drag queen to come out and do her number in the ring, um, kind of in between um, these matches. And this is where I first met Logan Knight. He was um, in one of these matches um, at the time. Um, and this event was super cool. I partnered with this local um, artist named Caleb Lindsay. He's got this artist residency house here in Tulsa called the Queen Rose Art House. It's you know, he bought this house, but he's painted it all these different beautiful colors and painted. He does drag performances, um, kind of these um, both like musical drag performances in characters, but also um, these like Internet comedy shorts uh, where he plays all of the characters in drag. Um, and. So like him in drag is like up, like painted on the sides of the walls and the outside of this house. And then around um, the privacy fence, all these other artists have come in and done little like square murals. So it's this really beautiful space. And uh, they were doing this art organization. He's a part of the Tulsa Artist Fellowship was doing their annual open house that week where they bring in a lot of other artists and art writers from all around the country. And I was able to like, this event was like the second to last thing in the weekend. Um, it was this event and then like an after party. So mm -hmm. all of these artists from all over the country and, you know, art writers and photographers were there to see the goofiest show that they could have ever imagined you know <laughs> they're looking at these like paintings and art installations and then it's like backyard pro wrestling um and drag and sasha velour was there oh really like, just in the audience <laughs> uh, see she said she was gonna buy one of my books online and i don't know if she did um mm -hmm. sasha velour if you listen to this show and you didn't buy my book, shame on you. Um, <laughs> you still have a chance to make up for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but so that was super cool, you know. Um, but it was also, you know, it's this 
form of entertainment that's like looked at as low brow to a lot of like the artsy fartsy world um and there was definitely tons of that happening in the ring you know um in the first match logan knight was fighting another wrestler um who was in a clown gimmick and the clown stole his nose rubbed it on his butt and then gave it back and then logan's like selling like it smells really bad and then you know gets hit with a move um one of one of the most creative things i've ever seen yeah uh, and i think that's one of the beauties of like indie pro wrestling shows too is you're seeing like some of the most creative stuff you'll ever see for an audience of like 30 40 people yeah. um in the final match of the night um the wrestler who won the main event was you know so tired that they like fell over in the ring and the referee revived them with a joint <laughs> you know it, it was great i it was so much fun doing this show um and you know just getting to like you know, I write in this book about like the perfect bastard helping the ring crew put the ring together and these like eager eyed teenage boys who like think it's so cool to get a touch of pro wrestling ring. Um, and then I got to like do that. Like after I had already written about it, I got to help, you know, put the ring together and take the ring apart. And the neighbors from the because this is in a real neighborhood, you know, yeah. Um, the neighbors from the next house over came over and you know, these boys helped us take the ring apart and um, just like really cool community stuff. Um, but also, you know, I wrote this book about pro wrestling because I love pro wrestling because it's something I've always loved. And it just felt right to me that like this should happen in a ring. This should happen, you know, the poetry audience for the most part you know, I am their connection to pro wrestling. Mm. Everything that, you know, that my audiences for the most part know about pro wrestling is something I've told them like before I read a poem as context or, you know, um, in conversation. So getting to like, like show them like, this is what I'm talking about. This is why this is like beautiful and artistic and, you know, fun. Um, was really like something I wanted to do, you know, mm -hmm. I wanted it to not like, don't take my word for it. The pro wrestling's great. Like, look at it. And, you know, even the Caleb Lindsay, the artist whose backyard we used, um, you know, had knew nothing about pro wrestling beforehand, but was talking to the guys after the match, like, Hey, how much do you charge for this? Would you want to come back and do this thing again? You know? So I feel like I like accomplished my goal in that. And like, I connected this other world I'm a part of to this thing that I love. Mm. There's always like a, a, a warm feeling that comes whenever you're able to like introduce people who don't really have a connection to this world and show them something that they, that they can connect to and can understand why there's so much appreciation and love and commitment to, to this as an art form. 
you know, and to hear that that was the reaction from the people that were there in tennis that ha really hadn't had an experience like that before just warm. It warms my heart. It, it makes me yeah. so happy to look at the power and, that wrestling has. Yeah. And to begin with, you know, like at the beginning of the night, I wasn't sure it was going to happen. You know, the first <laughs> yeah. match started and I am the only one yelling. <laughs> um, like you, there's some videos where you can just hear me and no one else like reacting to some of these moves. But as the night went on, you know, the audience, like, I think they didn't know what they were watching, uh, you know, is totally outside of their like comfort level, their um, like sphere of familiarity. Um, but they gave it this chance. And as the night went on, they like got into it. And that was so awesome to see, you know? And I think that's like just true about pro wrestling. Um, this has nothing to do with queerness, really, except that um, I want to marry Daniel Bryan and Kofi Kingston. But in college, <laughs> I was watching um, the Elimination Chamber match um, that led up to Kofi Mania. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and I was watching it in like my dorm common area where there's the big TV. So people are coming and going. And a few people had stopped to be like, you're watching pro wrestling. Like, man, my little brother used to watch that or, Oh, that's so fake. And they kind of stood there and watched long enough that like when Kofi jumped up on top of the like pod in the chamber and started beating down Brian, like they were by the end of the match, they were like rooting for Kofi Kingston to win the title. When like 15 minutes before they were telling me how goofy and fake this thing was, you know, yeah, like they didn't see any promos. They didn't know any of this buildup. Just watching this action in the ring, they bought into this story that was being sold to them. Mm. I love it. I love it so much. I love the power of pro wrestling. Does this it, it's I mean, it's storytelling. It's art. It's sucking people in like in the minute that people like have that sort of like oh it's fake knob like turned down by just watching it like you just get sucked in and you understand and you get it and i love watching that click for people it's beautiful yeah but yeah that that live show uh was so much fun to do um if you guys ever get the chance to book your own wrestling show fucking do it man it was awesome um it's also a great way to make friends with local indie wrestlers. Uh, Cause you know what they love getting paid to wrestle. Yes. Uh, and if you're the one paying them to wrestle, they're probably going to like you a little bit. Uh, and I, you know, all these guys are local Oklahoma city, Tulsa guys like Logan Knight and Eddie Vaughn and dudes like that. So I still see these guys around at shows, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, Hey, remember that show we did together? Wasn't that cool? Yeah, you know, you have this memory that you can just immediately go back to and have that see where that connection happened. Right. Well, and they know. had fun too because they got to like perform in an atmosphere in a space and for an audience that they don't normally perform to. You know, they got to take their art form out and say like, "Look at what we do." I can imagine that was a, a very empowering thing for them to just be like, "Okay, like this." There's no strings like we don't have like 
promoters like over us. We don't have like because another thing in the book that, that is discussed is a lot about the the labor issue within pro wrestling too. Like we don't have these these controlling aspects of it. We just go out there and do what we want to do. Yeah. Um and that was another I didn't kind of set out to write that, you know. Mm -hmm. Um I was raised on kind of folk music and especially the music of Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and these kind of union guys like that who were, you know, writing songs about unions and writing, you know, going to perform for striking workers and stuff like that. So that was something that was always kind of ingrained in me, even before I kind of like knew what any of that meant, you know, mm -hmm. um, like I knew the phrase this machine kills fascists before i knew like what a fascist was and why a guitar uh was a machine that could kill them um but as i was writing this book you know a kind of the time that i was drafting it was the time that like cody rhodes was being interviewed by espn saying that like unions would shut pro wrestling down um, and Zelina Vega was tweeting, like, I support unionization, like, the day she was let go by the company. And, like, you know, it was kind of in the pro wrestling, like, zeitgeist at the time. Um, in that kind of sphere of current events. Um, and it just kind of became something that seeped into what I was writing, um, you know, through this character, um, the sunset kid who's kind of the perfect bastards you know tag team partner um lover and kind of like political mentor in a sense you know they kind of help to radicalize the perfect bastard in a lot of ways um and you know the the sunset kid at a point in this book tries to kind of stage a strike kind of unionize this locker room um, and that's drawing, again, from uh, real pro wrestling history. You know, I did a lot of drawing from real events and kind of recontextualizing them. Um, I don't agree with almost anything Jesse Ventura has to say. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but Jesse Ventura did, um, I'm sure you know, try to unionize the WWF locker room in the 80s and was sold out um, to Vince McMahon by Hulk Hogan. Um, fuck Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan just like on the record oh yeah uh, forever <laughs> um, you know even before this week like fuck Vince McMahon but like especially fuck Vince McMahon um, but you know that's something that kind of happens there's, there's this tension between um, the kind of jobbers and the enhancement talent and these you know, lower paid kind of undervalued pro wrestlers in the promotion and this champion. And one of the points I really try to make is that like, they're on the same team when it really comes down to the end of the day, you mm -hmm. know, it's them versus the boss, even if they don't, you know, even if the champion thinks, you know, he's above that he's been chosen, he's been anointed. Um, there's a point in the book where I say that the champion Jack Holiday, um, that he thinks, you know, that he actually won the belt for real. Um, yes. You know, he's kind of lost sight that he's 
one of these wrestlers at the whims of the booker or the promoter, just like everyone else. Um, but yeah, that was, that's a part of the book I'm really proud of. And I'm really, um, you know, I'm glad it's kind of got that hard hitting political critique, but really just kind of came out of researching this history, but also just watching you know, the current events that were unfolding at the time. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's a, it's organically brought into the narrative of it in, in a way that I think, you know, definitely speaks to the issue at hand, an issue that has not gone away. You know, that, that discussion still happens, even if it's not as out there as like Zelina Vega tweeting about it or, you know, Andrew Yang, like talking about how he wants to help unionize pro wrestling at that point, you know, before he quickly moved on to something else, you know, that he thought would better his political career and that sort of thing. So, right. Like, he, he saw the same John Oliver piece everyone else did. And exactly. He got on the bandwagon <laughs> for a couple weeks. Uh, and then John Oliver put out another episode and he, you know, got on that bandwagon. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think the book is really about like queer people in the workplace mm. and the struggles, you know, queer people face. And, you know, a lot of those are based on, you know, how we present or how people think we should present as queer people. And we get a lot of that with the Billy, um, you know, Gunn and Adrian Street kind of analogs. Um, but it's also, you know, a class thing and a money thing. And, you know, um, there's also a cultural aspect too. you know, with, yeah. with the setting and like the hillbilly ness and, and that sort of thing, too, there. Like, I love the description of like the birth of the the very first like piece and at the the birth, like talking about like, you know, just made of like tobacco spit and fucking dirt and all like it's just uh, like it just. It's it's evocative of like you know the things in those regions of the of the country that really are like deeply ingrained these sort of like cultural touchstones these idioms that are kind of put into the the mindset of of youth when they're growing up. Yeah, and I think you know there are queer people everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but there are especially queer people in the places that you think there aren't queer people, you know? And I think maybe queer people are less visible in a lot of like spaces like Arkansas and Oklahoma, where it might not be as safe or they might not feel as comfortable outwardly presenting. But I think that's where the stakes are the realest, you know? Um, that's where like some hick bigot you know dropping the f slur is like there are queer people around hearing you say that even yeah. if you don't think there are even if you think oh we're in arkansas no you know this is straight white you know back slapping country um you know queer people are there and they're hearing what you're saying and it hurts um and so I, you know, I wanted the perfect bastard to be a character that like is never in the closet, is never um, 
you know, and that was something that like people reading this book, even other queer people like in the critique, you know, workshop process would be like, there's no poem in this book where the perfect bastard like comes out where they discover that they're queer. And I'm um, like, I think that's, I think that's so boring, I guess. Uh, We've had enough it, coming out stories. Not that point. it isn't important, but it's like, that's, that can't be the only queer story we know how to tell. Yeah. And it definitely isn't the only queer story like worth telling. Um, so it's really important to me that there's no moment where the perfect bastard is like, am I, am I not? Well, maybe, you know, that's, that is, if that's happened, it's already happened before the book opens, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, in the same deal where they are never called anything else in this book except the perfect bastard. I don't shorten it. I don't give them a nickname. I don't give you like a name they use when they're not in the ring, you know, for all intents and purposes, the perfect bastard is just their name. And they're never referred to in any other way. Um, You know, there's no dead naming for drama. Um, There's allusions to the fact that the crowd or the booker might do that, but it never appears on the page, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that was something that was kind of important to me in like presenting a queer person who is respected in the world. um, At least in the most base level ways. And, you know, the perfect bastard has other struggles they come to in this world they're in as a queer person where, okay, you're a queer person, you're a non-binary person. Here's how we expect you to act. Here's what we want you to do as a queer person. Um, And that's kind of the tension. But the tension is never like we do not recognize that we do not, um, you know, that most basic level of respect that a lot of us still don't get and that a lot of us are fighting for um, because I have the power to choose what happens in this book. That's just a given. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was one of those things that like I, you know, some people and even like I said, other queer people kind of questioned me about, um, you know, at least a little bit. And I was like, no, this is, you know, I feel very strongly about this. No, and I think I think it's I think you were right to do that too because I feel like if because most of the of the book it's not all of it is like told from the perspective of the perfect bastard, right? Why would they want to like kind of why would they want to include that verbiage? You know, why would they want to like say their own dead name if whenever like somebody dead names them? Why would they want to like talk about that sort of thing openly stuff that's going to hurt them to hear? You know, like it makes sense in the narrative as well. And 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 hearing that that was like an active choice that, that you made and like that, I don't know, that just adds more to like the perspective, I think, of, of the character itself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's still like there were points in the workshop process where um, at the beginning of the book, the book's kind of, it's poetry, but it's kind of adopts this almost play-like formatting. You know, mm-hmm. it's broken up into acts. 
And at the very beginning, you know, there's a setting um, description and then there's a list of characters, um, you know, the roster page. And all of the characters' names and pronouns are listed there. And the perfect bastard is at the very top of the list and it says the perfect bastard, they, them. And I still had comments on this book that were like, you know, this is such a great story about a gay man trying to just be who he is in the world. And Jesus, come on. <laughs> you know, so, some straight people just are intentionally like ignorant, you know, just mm -hmm. willfully thick skull. Yeah. Um, but in my world, that doesn't happen, you know. Mm -hmm. In the world that I can create for the perfect bastard, it's better than that. <laughs> and honestly, that's what we're trying to do is create a world that is better than what we currently have right now. Right. And I think that's what art is, what poetry is, what pro wrestling is. Is like you have the ability to be whatever you want, to step into, you know, these delightfully ridiculous worlds where you can bend the logic and the rules and you know kind of peek behind the curtain of reality and i think in a lot of ways like in practice like um that's not always the case but i think that can be a really like liberating um tool you know mm -hmm. i think if you're someone like me who grew up like almost exclusively with the WWE or like these mainstream versions of pro wrestling, like it is often not been, you know, a place to explore these wide ranges of experiences and identities, but like absolutely it should be. And if you watch a lot of indie pro wrestling, like it is, um, you know, you get to see like people from different dimensions, or, um, you know, like if The Undertaker can come out and like has magic, like anything is possible. Yes. <laughs> and that's awesome. And it like, I think we can do more with like that tool we've been given. And I think there are a lot of people who are like looking at that. People like... Um, dark chic or um effie or even in aw people like the acclaimed who are like okay we can do whatever we want let's run with it mm. no it's it's definitely a shift in 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 power and one that has been long overdue you know and to understand exactly like the limits of what you can do and how far those limits actually are you know, like it's it's a wonderful thing to see. Um, but I have one last question for you here as we start to wind down, and then we're gonna close with with a reading of another piece from from the book. Um, but how now that the book is is complete and and out and it's been out for for a little while, how has writing this changed your relationship with pro wrestling? Um. I think if anything, it's kind of like deepened my love of pro wrestling. Um, you know, there is this overarching narrative in the book. Um, and I do think I do want people to like pick up the book and read it um, from front to back. So I don't want to give too many spoilers about how the story kind of wraps up. But the perfect bastard makes this decision um, 
at the end of the book um, to kind of, you know, they make this decision that maybe the world of pro wrestling is not for them or is not, you know, welcoming them in the way that they would like or is not giving them the respect that they deserve. Um, and that was what was true for the character as I was writing it. But I feel totally opposite, you know. I just want to dig deeper into the world of pro wrestling. Um, even when I think, like I said, that like the reality of pro wrestling doesn't always live up to its potential, you know, as this like liberating and freeing space. I think that just makes me like want to make it better or to find the wrestling that's doing that and promote it, you know? Um, and a lot of, you know, I found a lot of that on the indie scene, um, you know, either through YouTube or through local shows, you know, I think that's where a lot of the really like transformative stuff is happening. Um, partly because, you know, people are just being more creative, um, because they're doing something they love, not doing something that's a job, but also because like there's not like corporate interest saying like, you know, this is what the focus group wants or this is inappropriate for advertisers or whatever. Um, you know, um, I just like my love for pro wrestling has just been deepened by this book. And by the chance, like I said, to network with all of these other people writing about pro wrestling or talking about pro wrestling in all these different ways. Um, one of my goals I've actually set for myself in 2024 is I would like to ring announce at least one pro wrestling show. Okay. Uh, I'm not an athletic person. Uh, <laughs> I do not work out. I'm 5'8". I'm like, I don't. You know, you're not going to see me in the ring, but I just like love being a part of this world, you know, um, and I'd love to dig into some of those other aspects, you know, uh, commentary, ring announcing my like big like pipe dream is like I want to be a manager like I'm mouthy and opinionated, you know, I want to <laughs> do the fun promo stuff. Just don't put me in the ring. Um, but yeah, totally like unlike the perfect bastard i'm not walking away from this thing you know um i wrote this book because i love this art form really deeply um and like getting to do this book made me dig deeper into this art form and made me want to keep digging deeper you know mm -hmm. oh that's i mean honestly i think that's a wonderful outcome yeah well as we as we set to close here, I do want to turn the floor over to you for for one last reading from from the book. And uh, if you want to, however you want to set set this one up, go for it. I'll, the floor is yours. Yeah. Well, first of all, just thank you for having me on this show, Brian. This has been so awesome being here and just getting to chat with you. Um, and you know. Um, I've had a lot of fun over the past month or so getting to dig into old episodes of the show and listening to new ones as they come out. Um, so it's really cool to get to be a part of this thing. 
Um, and I guess if people want to find me, um, I'm on Instagram at Quinn Carver Johnson. I'm on Twitter as Q Carver Johnson. Um, you can find The Perfect Bastard anywhere but Amazon. You can find it on Amazon, but like, please don't. Yeah. Um, go to bookshop. Um, you know, if your local bookstore doesn't carry it, ask them to carry it or go to bookshop and buy it on behalf of your local bookstore. Give them a little bit of the money. If you like it, rate it on Goodreads. If you don't like it, rate it on Goodreads, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I hope you folks will check the book out. You know, it was something I really enjoyed getting to write. And um, this is a poem when I do live readings. This is always the poem I close the show with, um, even though it's actually pretty early on in the book. Um, but it's called Ode to the Pink Cowboy Hat. Ode to the Pink Cowboy Hat. And in the summer of 1986, I Want to Be a Cowboy was number 12 on the charts. And the music video featured a man, a best of the bad type, buck naked except his hat, smoking a blunt in the bath. And MTV hated the video, said it wasn't rock and roll. But the song was a smash hit, so they had no choice. And that's how it found me. Two decades later, a child discovering the last remnants of VHS tapes in their room. As the cartoon thought bubble begins to expand, learning that a fantasy looks like a naked cowboy in his bathtub. And that was the summer of 2006. But in the summer of 1986, Boys Don't Cry released their only major hit song. And during that same summer, and that summer only, Bob Orton wore a pink hat when he came to the ring, alongside the adorable one. When visiting Adrian Adonis in the flower shop, when bludgeoning his old friend Roddy Piper in the ring, and it's telling that Lemmy Kilmister plays a spaghetti western cowboy in the video for I Want to Be a Cowboy. And I watched those old westerns in the boxes of VHS tapes, and it's telling that in those films, the hero wears the white hat, rides into town on a white stallion to gun down the villain beneath the midnight brim, and I don't need to tell you what it means that cowboy Bob Orton came to the ring in a pink hat, paired with Adonis's lace and eyeshadow, and I don't need to tell you who the villain of the story was or who was gunned down when Roddy Piper decided that a town wasn't big enough for two men. But what I need to tell you is I can make a town or a home big enough for two men. All it takes is a small garden in the windowsill. Here, take this spade. Gather me a handful of soil from the park, and I could plant seeds in the ground, beg rain from the clouds, turn Piper's pit into the flower shop. I would tug at lavender leaves and draw you a bath, 
roll the herb tight and add mint to your tea. If you're going to be a cowboy, then I want to be a cowboy too. And I want to wear the pink hat. Thank you again. My thanks once again to Quinn for taking the time to come on the show and, and discuss their book and, um, you know, especially give us those those readings. I, I told Quinn this after we wrapped recording, but I think I could listen to them read from from their book for hours at this point. Like you just, I just got these like these goosebumps whenever they started reading their own words, and it was just, and and they're right. Like the best way to experience poetry is to have it read out loud, um, in a personal setting. There. Um, just amazing stuff. Obviously, if you want to pick up a copy of the book for yourself, it's available at uh, Northwestern University Press, as well as all the other sites and places that uh, that Quinn mentioned there at the end. Um, just outstanding debut collection there, and I'm glad that you know we have, uh, at least to my knowledge, we have Quinn and Colette. Now we have uh, multiple people in this space that have really done some very evocative. Uh, poetry, looking at wrestling through, um, looking looking at wrestling through different lenses than it has ever been looked at before um, in that way. So definitely check out the book if you are at all interested. Uh, I cannot re recommend it enough. Honestly, I'm probably gonna read through it again in the next week or so, <laughs> just because like this conversation really uh, touched me in in that way. So yeah. That's going to do it for us this week, though. Come back next week. We will have another uh, fun episode of the show for all of y'all. Before we get out of here, though, we do need to shout out the Roster of Lovelies once again. Of course, if you want to become a member of the Roster of Lovelies and be part of this section of the show every single episode, you can go over to patreon.com slash lgbtringpod, subscribe to the $3 tier, join the likes of Jerry Legend, Val Capone, Zach Walker, and Alex E., and be counted among the ranks of, of the roster of lovelies here on the show. Um, and of course, again, at the $5 tier, you get all of the uh, the bonus shows, the, all of the episodes require reading, um, and any other projects that we are may or may not be working on at the moment. Uh, but yes, <laughs> you get that over there too. Um, of course, financial support is not feasible for everyone, and we completely understand that here at LGBT in the Ring. So, um, you know, word of mouth rates, rating and reviewing the show on, on your podcast platform of choice and really anything just spoken word. It's kind of a theme of the day. Anything spoken word that can be done to help spread the word about the show is always, always greatly appreciated here at the show. Uh, all right. Well, I think that does it for us today. So we'll see you next week. Until then, y'all stay messy. Wash your hands, wear your mask, get vaccinated and boosted if at all possible. The same goes for monkeypox. And keep holding their feet to the fire. Bye.